trolling, trolling for ten baggers. Trolling, trolling for ten baggers. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. You're here with Joel and Sam. We're here to talk about finding 10 baggers. That's a stock that's gone up 10 times. There isn't much out there about how you find a 10 bagger, so we chat to people who've found them before. In the show, we talk to all sorts of guests about all sorts of different things, but just remember that nothing included is advice. Make sure to speak with a professional advisor about your own circumstances before making any financial or investment decisions. Hi, and thanks for joining us. Today we're joined by a guest who operates a fund focusing entirely in small and nanocap stocks. They've also successfully identified a few 10 baggers along the way too. Over the last five years, they've delivered to their shareholders grossed up returns of over 40% annually. We chat today with Andre Marschke, Managing Director of Scintilla Strategic Investments. We talked to Andre about his background, his approach to small cap stocks and why he chooses to invest in those versus larger companies, and also the strategies and techniques he uses to assess those companies. We discuss the techniques to manage some of the risk and volatility that's often found at the smaller end of the market, and also the different approach and mindset that comes when managing other people's money versus just your own personal funds. But that's enough of an introduction, so let's get on with the show. Okay, thank you for joining us, listeners. Today we have a very special guest, Andre Marschke, the portfolio manager from Scintilla. Andre, thanks for jumping on the show. Thanks for having me. Just to start us off, please, I guess, uh, how how you ended up in your current role, what got you into markets and that sort of thing. Sure. I, probably the first stock I ever bought was a, was a micro cap when I was probably 17, 18. Uh, an older friend of mine had been sort of dabbling in shares and would show me his Foster's share certificates and Lahir's share certificates, so probably showing my age here. Uh, so I thought, okay, I went along and found a broker at Potter Warburg, which at the time was... I think they're now UBS. They were a really high net worth. And I think the, the broke there must have thought I had a rich dad or something. He was really good. Showed, showed me everything on the, on the market. And pulled up a chart and he said, oh, we like the gold price at the moment. So you think, uh, you know, if you buy gold stocks and the gold price goes up, this, this gold stock should go up. And I thought, oh, that's a, that's a pretty simple concept. I can get on board that. Uh, and that gold stock at the time was about $1.50, and I think I had $2,000. So I said, well, I can't buy too many of those. So I ended up settling on a little thing called Grange Resources, which I still think is um, trading. It was at 13 cents. And uh, they had a little discovery run up to 17. So I sold those, and I thought, this is, this is fantastic. Um, here's my career path, drop out of uni. Uh, and then I bought another thing called AMX Resources, which I noticed would trade from 20 up to 22 and back to 20. So I put in a little order at 20, picked them up, sold them at 22. Thought this is fantastic, 10% a week. And then they proceeded to go to 70 or 80 cents very quickly on the back of the discovery. And that that pretty much scarred me for the next next couple of decades. I, it was um, it was shattering for me. Calculated the, of course, the profit that you left on the table. And I was earning probably $6 an hour at, Pizza Hut, so that was um, that left a mark. And then uh, a few years later, after uni, I got a job straight away as a stockbroker. Uh, and they basically said, "Here's a phone uh, and a screen," and that was pretty much all the guidance uh, I had. So I was really uh, thrown in the deep end there. 
uh, but it coincided with the tech boom. Uh, we weren't allowed to buy tech stocks for our clients, but uh, we could PA on our, on our personal accounts. And uh, one of the old brokers next to me said, read this book. It was uh, Profiting in Bull and Bear Markets by Stan Weinstein. I don't know if it's still available, but it's, it's worth a read. And his system was uh, the stock's been consolidating, breaks out on decent volume, you buy it. If it breaks down through support, you sell it. That's your stop loss. And uh, that strategy worked really well in the, in the tech boom because all these little mining stocks that have been going sideways, doing nothing, then suddenly switch to tech. You get the volume breakout, and you just buy them. And you double your money pretty quickly. So I think I started with 10 or 20 grand there and uh, made enough to put a deposit on a nice beachfront apartment. So I think I was 23 at the time. I thought, oh, this is, this is easy peasy. And then we had the tech crash, and 9-11, uh, and then I, I saw the horrible side, the dark side of markets, and that brought me back down to earth again. Uh, and at that point, I was just buying blue chips, setting up blue chip portfolios for clients, and it was I found the biggest stocks really boring and uh, liked to chase down the, the small end but not being able to buy them for clients and realising this takes time to research, but I'm on the phone all the time. Uh, I thought it was time to set up a little fund and spend time researching and looking, looking for these things rather than just sort of being on the phone talking bigger companies and trying to make 10% a year on a portfolio. So that led me to Scintilla. Yeah, okay. So was it pretty much that you finished up with the stock working altogether when you started Scintilla or went out doing your own fund? Yeah, I was broking at the time with uh, Salomon Smith Barney, which is a big US firm, and you really couldn't buy anything outside the top 50 and had to have an analyst rating. Uh, and I do remember uh, one of the local Gold Coast mining entrepreneurs, Wayne McRae, came in and wanted to raise some money uh, for his thing called Cadeco. I think it was four cents. Uh, and, of course, it got knocked on the head uh, by our management. And then I... I think it went to a dollar or something really quickly. So I was like, okay, there's got to be a better way. So one of the other brokers there, Brad Simpson and I, we, we went off and started uh, Scintilla to look at the uh, the small end of the market, which we saw as really under, under-researched. So when was that exactly? That was during the sort of dot-commy boom, was it? Or? No, that was, that was post the, that wreckage of, of the dot-coms. Um, so we set up Scintilla a year or two before... GFC, so we had a one or two cracking years, and then uh, when we raised our next big chunk of money, the GFC hit. I think probably 24 hours later, after we deployed deployed the last dollar of our newly raised capital, uh, and then so once again the dark side of the the market for, and that was that was really brutal, and so that was tough, sort of going to our new investors and saying, oh well, we're down down significantly and but they're all super supportive and, and for the next um and they've all been well paid since that so they've stuck with us and and we've um delivered pretty well for them well yeah certainly sounds like a challenging start but it's um all turned out well in the in the long run uh, maybe just for listeners background as well just to give a bit of an understanding about what scintilla is and why the focus on small companies like i know on your website, you've got the, the definition of the word scintilla, which is a tiny or scarcely detectable amount. But I'm just interested to understand what your 
rationale or the background for focusing on such small companies is? Yeah, it's uh, we started down the ultra micro cap end. I think the cheaper, I mean, it's all about price, the cheaper the valuation and that, that de-risks uh, a lot of what you're doing. And so you can skew that risk reward in your favour uh, and get the leverage. And, and just by definition, new technologies, they're in small companies, uh, you, you know, new, and, and entrepreneurs, they start small companies and they want to get listed and they need capital. So a lot of the uh, best new tech or best new ideas or even in terms of geology, finding new mineral deposits comes from guys who've left big companies and uh, want the upside and leverage of a, of their own sort of skin in the game. So, And so when you, when you say micro cap, do you have a definition for that? Because I know like overseas, some people will say under 400 million, but I know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's. I think honestly, anything under fifty or sixty million in the in the Aussie market overseas, you know, half half a billion dollars is a micro cap. So, I think the terminology here is probably nano cap or something like that. Yeah. So your mandate, you don't have a, a too small. Then you'll go as no. small as you can get. Absolutely. Cool. Yeah. And you mentioned their mining. Do you resort? Do you invest in resource companies specifically or uh, broadly? We do a lot of resources. Because the, the the Australian market, just by its nature, has got a lot of natural resources. We've got um, a lot of gas, a lot of oil, a lot of you know. Look at the gold production that comes out of WA. It's, you know, we're a very resource rich country. So, just by that nature, you're going to have lots of companies and lots of entrepreneurs in that space. And I always like the concept of you can put a drill hole that might cost two or three hundred thousand dollars, and you can turn up a $100 million ore body. So that leverage is all, always been quite attractive. And also initially, uh, I worked for Hartley Point over here, which was a WA broker. So they fed us um, at the time, probably their, their bad resource deals and kept the good ones for themselves on the West Coast. Uh, but that gave me exposure to that resource market and that sort of stuck stuck with me. Okay, and so it's not, but you're not sort of strictly speaking resources only or any one particular resource, you'll look at anything? That's right. It's across the board and it's generally uh, the same sort of, the same sort of things we look for in well-managed small resource companies are the same well-managed small tech companies or well-managed small biotech companies. There's a lot of, a lot of um, overlap in what we're looking for there. So we're pretty sector agnostic. Okay. Yeah, so just to dig into that a bit more then, I suppose, regardless of whether it's a resources company or an industrial or some other small or cap, what are some of the things you're really specifically looking at when you're deciding whether something's investable or not? Yeah, so we look for a bit of a cross between uh, some entrepreneurship uh, and experience. So whether that's sort of an enthusiastic sort of founder, but coupled with with a good good quality board that's done it before. I can sort of keep keep an eye on the on the founder and, and that sort of thing. So that's from a management perspective, and then supportive shareholders as well. So if they've got a group of shareholders that have deep pockets, you know that when things uh, get a bit tough, there's um, there's a way of raising capital there, keep the thing going. Okay, and in terms of raising capital, are you the sort of shareholder that will keep contributing more capital and going in and further rounds as the story progresses, or is it more of a once you're set, you sort of wait and let things play out? Yeah, yeah. If we've got the timing wrong, then we'll, we'll we'll top up again at the at the next raise. And one thing that um, someone said to me once was, 
it was with junior resources. They said if they find something, they need money, and if they don't find something, they need money. So you've always got to be aware of the capital requirements at this, this end of the market. And in terms of the, the nature of those sorts of stocks, like obviously you talked about ones that have got a like a high chance of doing really well. What's mm. the is that the only appeal to it, or like what's the sort of um, the reason that you always go there? Because a lot of other stories, you know, will go up multiples of over time as well. But are you looking really for that sort of binary type outcome, or just the? Oh, is this in the, the resource space? Oh yeah, resource or wherever yeah. you yeah wherever you choose to invest. Yeah, it's a good question about the the binary outcome. Uh, a lot of times, if the binary outcome is big, we can make money before the result is even published or, you know, there's results out there uh, just on the expectation and people get excited about the blue sky. So uh, we won't necessarily be there for that binary outcome or we might retain a small shareholding. It's about um, if management can develop and prove up an opportunity uh, the market sort of generally takes care of the uh, the excitement because people love chasing blue sky. And when you say blue sky, can you sort of talk us through that? What are you what are you looking for when you just find something as having that potential? Yeah. So generally, if we need to be able to do a back of the envelope uh, for, for a business that we're looking at, it has to go up, be able to go up sort of five times if they get things right. Uh, and then that leaves a lot of room. If they partially get it right, there's still going to be, you're still going to get a decent move out of the stock. If they really get it right, you've done well. And if they execute poorly, then you can hopefully get your money back or something like that. Okay, so if you're talking five times as a sort of baseline expectation, I'm guessing you've had some that have done even, even more than that. Yeah, we've had, I mean, obviously... I guess it's a criteria to be on this podcast. You ought to have, have had at least one 10 bagger. We, we try, um, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I think we'll take any bags at the moment, <laughs> So, yeah. 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 I'm happy with point two of a bag at, at the moment. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the, the recent one we had probably with DGO Gold, which got taken out by um, Gold Road recently. So that was a 20 center that, um, and we got some free options and that ended up getting taken out in three dollars something so that was um that's worked out that worked out well and that wasn't a, a big bang binary outcome they were just putting various projects together and building value but it had a big entrepreneur behind it as well so i just wanted to come back to the point where you you kind of mentioned these companies are always needing money even if you're not doing something or drilling yep i understand that premise i know i know like joel does I just think a lot of retail investors don't quite understand that. So do you have any ways, do you kind of, so, are you kind of suggesting that retail investors need to embrace that to an extent as well? Or do you try and time, you know, yeah. your decisions based on it? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a really good question. I think it's just being aware that if you get excited about something and uh, don't look closely enough at the last quarterly cash flow report and then uh, the next announcement you see is a pretty heavily discounted placement, which means there's a whole lot of new fresh stock at a discounted price that the market has to wash through, then it's it's something you need to be aware of. And, and it might just, um, if there's no upcoming catalyst and they're running low on cash, 
then you might just sit back and wait for that capital raising opportunity. And it doesn't mean you're necessarily participating in a placement, but you just might be participating in a weaker price on the market. I think that's a really important fact there that some people probably don't appreciate about. It's not just that the company's recapitalized after a, a placement or a rights issue, however a company's funded, but that cheap, like you say, cheaper stock that's now available means the price can move up a small amount and some shareholders are now in the money and might choose to take profits. Whereas yeah. others have, if you're hanging on a long time, you might be still underwater and wondering why people are selling. That's right. Yeah. For anyone listening to this next year, whenever we've just finished the end of quarter reporting and, you know, it's, it's quite cognizant in my mind where companies are that might still have cash in the bank that are still raising money. And, and, and you think about the fact that maybe they don't need this money, but maybe they're trying to draw catalysts as well and get increased appetite or, or attention. I don't know what you have a thought on this as I guess a participant, but yeah, I think sometimes company directors might get a bit spooked by by a downturn and if there's a little bit of an improvement like we've had in the last couple of weeks and a broker says, oh look, there's a bit of appetite around, do we just top up? And I think there might be a little bit of that. But most of the time they're um, they might have a, a drilling program coming up that might burn cash quicker than they have been in the last few quarters. And so they just it's just making sure that their their business plan that they're talking about, their activity is funded. Um, so you need to sort of forecast that out. That actually goes to what I was going to ask you about now, which is really timely, um, as well as, I guess, the, the management of the company and the funding position. What are the other things that you really dig into about a company? And maybe more importantly for listeners, how do you go about finding out that information? Yeah, so... In terms of, I mean, we've, we've sort of run a scorecard uh, before looking at it and the, probably our two biggest weightings is the near-term catalyst and, uh, and the size of the upside, so the, the blue sky potential. And that, that, um, that near-term catalyst keeps people from selling and also induces buyers. So I think that de-risks um, the investment because you're not waiting while the company's draining cash for something to happen. I hadn't thought about that. It prevents people from selling is a really interesting take on why a catalyst is so important. Not just, yeah. The, yeah. So even if, you know, people are a bit nervous, if there's a big upcoming catalyst, you get less people selling and then you get more people interested in the catalyst and it's normally there's a bit of a roadshow or something happening. And so you get less supply and more demand. And that's when you get, Tend to get a pop, and that's what uh, that's what we're looking for, you know. And if there's big upside uh, with associated with that catalyst, then that induces more buying. Yep. And in terms of doing that, like sort of groundwork to find out what the catalyst might be, you're working out the mechanics of the company. Is that usually just reading the ASX announcements, or do you go and do your sort of own sector research and things as well? How does that process play out? Yeah. So it's that comes down to um, reading lots and lots of quarterlies and company updates. Uh, and then speaking to the company, so it's it's pretty rare we we buy a stock without having first spoken to to management uh, because you might read a great report, might be an exploration company they've got a huge target, can't wait to drill it, they've got cash, uh, but if you dig a little bit deeper, they um, might be a wet season coming up. Uh, you know, it might be October, you know, if they're not, don't have a rig by November, 
we basically won't be able to do anything till March, April next year. So it might be a case of finding out have they got a rig balked? Are they going to beat the wet season? Uh, because if they don't, it's just going to be sitting there for four or five months and the stock's not going to go up. Yeah, okay. And maybe going back to what we spoke about before is they might be raising money just because it's opportune time to do so, maybe rather than yeah. needing the cash right now sort of thing. Yeah. So it's just just those little nuances around the timing and uh, making sure that they can execute because four or five months in a market is a long time. On that, do you, how, what would your average sort of holding time be? Do you know, or is it a really varied? Oh, look, we can. I mean, we can hold for for years if there's continuous activity. This is probably more in those uh, binary style outcomes where you're expecting a particular drilling campaign or something like that. Yep. I guess on the on the uh, expectation that everything works out and your um, strategy works really well and the stock price does rapidly accelerate. Yeah. What do you find yourself doing then? Is it usually hold on and try and pick the top or is it um, selling in as it goes up or what's the exit strategy there? Yeah. I think um, on that outline you sent me, how do you know when it's time to sell when a stock goes parabolic? And it's, it's, a, really, it's a really good question. Uh, and we've got, we do have an acronym in our sort of checklist. It's W-Y-B-I-I-Y-D-A-O-I which sounds like gibberish, but it stands for would you buy it if you didn't already own it, okay? And so in the midst of this thing that's running hard, uh, you've got to do a quick valuation, see where the market cap is. And, you know, if it's gone from a 20 mil market cap to a 100 mil market cap and and not a whole lot has changed, there's just a little bit of excitement, uh, then you ask yourself, would I buy this now at this market cap? Uh, and if the answer is no, then that's uh, you should be selling it, basically, because holding is is effectively people think of it as a non-decision, but it's uh, it's actually a decision. You're committing capital at that point to this business <laughs> that's um, trading at this lofty valuation. So that's one thing we use, and, and secondly, uh, look for it to start falling because sometimes you can get those rapid rises. And if you try and pick the top, that's, you know, that never works. So it's better to wait for it to potentially peak and start to fall and sell on the way down, generally. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting one because I think sometimes the really small companies that are undervalued because the market's not appreciating them can can rise significantly and still be relatively cheap, which comes back to that, that test you mentioned. Yeah. Would, you, would you be buying it? So maybe even if something's doubled or tripled, you might still be buying it. Yeah, um, and it, so it's not necessarily a reason to sell. Oh, that's really good. Um, I think one of the things I always often find hard is, and I know Joe and I have discussed it, is this, when stock when stocks have bagged from such a low level is is actually going. You know what? I'm I'm on some paper profits here, but no, I actually think this has got more to run and buying. Have you ever found yourself in a similar situation where you know it's it's put on a bag or it's put on a good meaty, you know, fifty percent or whatever, and you've gone, no, this is. Now people are starting to realise this is, this is time to buy. Yeah, it, it depends on the... Um, sometimes companies will develop momentum in their business. So you have to try and discern whether it's a one-off uh, catalyst that's played out and there's not going to be anything for 
another six months. It might be the market's waiting for, for an approval on a maybe on a phase two trial for a biotech or something and everyone gets excited. Uh, and, but then there's not going to be another catalyst for six or 12 months. So in that case, we'd look to, to exit that at that point. But if it's maybe a new contract that the market's excited about and then there's a few others that, that could be maturing in a relatively short time frame, the business is getting some momentum because they've been investing heavily in sales for the last 12, 18 months and nothing's come to fruition and everyone's kind of sick of it. But now they're getting momentum. Then if you can understand that that sales pipeline's maturing and there's going to be more and more contract wins, for example, then we'd probably hang in there and, and wait for it to play out. Mm. So if sense. I've understood, sorry, Andre, if I've understood that correctly, it's, it's really comes back to the thesis is are there more catalysts? And if so, then yes. 100%. I mean, yeah. Um, okay. It sounds really simple and basic when you say it like that, I guess. <laughs> no, I know it does. I know, we're all, I know investors are always faced with this. That's why I always like to ask them because I know I find it challenging. I want to come back to that one that you mentioned at the very start, the one that went from 20 to 22. Was it AMX or something? Yeah. Um, yep. Um, that's got me. Yeah, we've yeah. all got one of those, I'm sure. How have you moved away from those lessons as a, a young lad to now and, 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 and doing the old thing where you do the anchoring bias and, you know, you, you buy something low and you sell it high and it pulls back and you think, I'm a bloody genius, and then it actually decides to invert on you and keep going up. Have you, yeah. have you overcome that and have you got any lessons or any learnings to share there? No, I haven't overcome it really. yeah there's all there's always those um and i think um what what i've tried to do is try and take your mind and your impulses out of the out of this business as much as possible and just have some of those checks around uh upcoming catalysts do they need money would we buy it at this price now and then sometimes you just have to rule line in the sand and say, that's my system and, and I'm out. Uh, other thing is, we'll, you know, we do still use, you know, full service brokers and we'll give them an order and just say, look, we want to work this into the, the next announcement. Uh, and I've watched them execute and gone, oh, no, we, we shouldn't be selling now. But it turns out to be the exact right thing to do. Uh, whereas if I'd allowed my impulse of, held back and the stock would have pulled, you know, pulled back. So it's trying to have these rules in place and these external um, controls over those impulses. Uh, but in terms of, you know, selling too early and watch things go uh, crazy, I think that's always just going to happen and you have to live with that. I think that's really valuable, Andre, because I think as investors, we're often faced with our psychological demons and, and things that will trip us up. And I think it, it's always just important. And everyone, everyone we've spoken to have, have said different variances of having a rules or checklist or a plan. Yeah. And I often see myself, you know, transitioning into this sort of, you know, period where it's become a bit tougher. And, you know, you, 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 you looked at something that you stuffed up and you go, actually, that, that was a basic rule that I didn't do. So just yeah you know having those rules somewhere right and having that checklist yeah and i think for me personally is a lot of the times uh i just want to be right i want to buy it perfectly and sell it perfectly and if i sell it and it goes up a bit then i 
feel like, oh, that's that's a failure uh, because I haven't nailed this. And it's this fear of being wrong and um, mm. having to get the exact bottom and then get the exact top. And then that's a successful trade. Uh, but over time, as, as I've failed to do that <laughs> consistently, I've worked out that um, if you get a meaty chunk somewhere in between and you do that consistently and you're making money, then that's um, that should be the ultimate goal, I think. And so you've got to veer away from your psychology of, oh, I got that wrong or I got that right. Um, it's, you know, did it make money and did I follow my system? Then that's a, that's a pretty good outcome. Yeah, terrific. Are they great insights? I, I don't know if it's related to this, but I was sort of wondering what, um, is it much different managing more money and other people's money than when it was just trading your own personal account in this sort of very volatile end of the market? Yeah, I think... Um, I think when it's other people's money as well, I think it's a, it's good to have the combination of your own and other people's. If it's just other people's money, I I, I think you could you're not as um, not as committed. And if it's just your own money, then you sort of your own psychology can mess you up. But if you combine the two, I think it's useful because you have that accountability that you don't have when you're trading your own personal money. Uh, but the thing that really, really worked for us was we set in place a, a dividend policy. And so we pretty much pay out all our trading profits as, as dividends. And what that did was, uh, you know, at the end of a quarter, we'd look and go, we've got this stock that, you know, it's had a good run. We've got this one. It's not that great. We don't believe it anymore. And we really take a good hard look at uh, trimming down to get the cash to pay out the dividend, basically. And so it puts a level of structure around uh, your capital allocation because when things are going well and uh, a broker rings you with another placement and, yeah, you just, okay, yeah, we've got plenty of cash, we'll take that on. But if you've just paid a big dividend, it reduces your cash balance again. So you become very careful about that next deployment of, of capital versus things are frothy and great and, yeah, we've made money on that. We'll sell that and we'll buy this next, take this next one. And, you know, just having that, that rule there added, added a lot of discipline to the, to the management. You find that you're, you're cashing in when things are going well. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I was going to ask about that. So, because the fund is set up as a company, is that right? Rather than a yeah, unit trust, it, that might be? Yeah, it's a public uh, unlisted company. So we, we, we pay tax and so we can stream out frank dividends as opposed to a trust. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So you basically, you've got shareholders in the company and then you pay them, like I said, dividends rather than distributions from a trust as such. Yeah. And is there any particular reason for that structure? I know that's less common in the sort of Australian fund industry. Yeah, it's actually really cheap to run. We just have, have it audited once a year by PKF and that's pretty much it. You don't need um, all the admin behind it. So it's it's really cheap and we've got the ability to pass on franking credits as well which which people love and the and the concept of you know we'd we'd have a good year and say to everyone oh you know we're up 30 percent this year and but if you have a um, a bad couple of six months and you're back to square the following year it's kind of pointless whereas this way we've got the 30 percent and we send out a 30 percent cash dividend then regardless of the next downturn people have already made made a decent chunk of money if that makes sense yeah 
Yeah, okay. And so under that model, what's the sort of, um, I suppose, performance or management fee under that? Because it sounds like the sort of incentive there is for you to, well, there's no incentive to grow the funds under management specifically, and there's more likely it's going to stay a bit smaller rather than just perpetually grow. Yeah. Uh, so basically, we're all performance fee based. We don't draw a, draw a um, salary or anything from the business. And I have kept it small like that to pay out the dividends for starters, but also uh, so I can maintain a good sort of work life balance as well. Uh, more funds, more responsibility and less time. And I've got a couple of young kids and I like to travel and all that sort of thing. So that's um, that's part of it as well. But dividends are great because they, they leave the market and you can do what you want with them. And, uh, you know, we have, we've had this last three or four months of just horror on the market and people are happy that they got their big dividend checks last year and earlier this year. So it um, takes a lot of the pressure off. The shareholders that you've got in the, in the fund then, as you mentioned some of those have been since the very beginning. Is there any, um, I guess, is there anything noteworthy about the types of people that you've got you're backing you or have you found that useful or disadvantageous at times? Yeah, I mean, we've got, We've got some terrific shareholders uh, in there. I probably need to keep them confidential, but there's, there's some big mining entrepreneurs in there, real estate entrepreneurs. And, and how do you have you found like people to basically, because obviously it's a very um, unique part of the market and way for people to try and extract some alpha or put, put money to work. How have you sort of traditionally found those people come to find about you and you guys? Oh, Brad, the the other founder, he was he was pretty well connected. So a lot of a lot of them came through him, uh, and they've just you know topped up over the years as well. Uh, yeah, so we haven't really had to seek it seek it out. It wasn't really a question of sorts, but I I, I just wanted to say before um, Andre what you were mentioning about not losing money. Um, I, I guess, or the aversion to risk and, and the decision that you made earlier saying that holding something is actually a decision. So um, do you have any thought? I mean, the, the thing that rang in the back of my mind when you mentioned this is that famous adage where a 33% loss is, you know, you have to work even harder to get that back, right? The simple math is you need to now get a 50% gain to get that 33 back. So when you're trying to structure your performance for conditions that are tough, do you, I guess, just I'm looking for insights for our listeners about that decision that you make about staying out of things or, or adapting. Yeah. We take, even though this is the, you know, it's regarded as the speculative higher risk end of the market, there are ways you can de-risk. Uh, and a lot of that comes down to the, the price that you're paying. Uh, and also because it's under-researched, you can buy things that have deep, deep asset value and at times a lot of cash. And, you know, we bought stuff recently at big discounts to cash. So, you know, we're, we're, we can sleep easily with those sort of things. And, you know, resource companies, they might have a, they might have a big jaw resource sitting there, um, but in an unloved commodity. So uh, we know that value there will, will support that company 
they need to raise a little bit of money here and there to keep going. I think it probably comes back to, like you've just mentioned, if it's already at a discount and, and you ask yourself the question, I'd probably buy more. If I'm not buying more, then why am I holding it right? Does, does it just come back to like something as simple as that? Yeah, I think that's that's a really good point in reverse too. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, would I, would I buy this company today knowing what I know about it? You know? and you've not, you probably know more about it than most having held it for a period of time or done some work on it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yes, I think, Sam, that's a, that's a really good point. But I think um, when things do get ugly sort of on a macro perspective, we do run some short positions on some of the overseas indices. And that's worked, worked pretty – it worked really well through COVID um, as that sort of gained momentum early on. We, we put some short positions out on some of the – international indices and it allowed us to we closed those positions that we ended up having a lot of cash profit which we could deploy into these beaten down microcaps so we sort of got a bit of a double whammy uh, through that through that period and i find it just helps with your psychology if you've got a, a hedge out there you know you might if things start looking ugly you might buy some out of the money index puts just to manage your psychology stops you from panicking and uh, and allows you you know it allowed us to to take a lot of cheap placements when if we didn't have the hedging we'd be thinking oh is this the end of the world is 20 percent of the population going to die here you know i think because i mean that was no one knew at the time but just having yeah. that hedging in place allows you to to be you know reasonably fully invested and to deploy your cash and that's when you get the um the good uplifts um takes the panic away from your thinking that's really really fascinating for me personally did you find yourself in the june 2022 period doing something similar or in that may june where the volatility not the, the liquidity just dried up in smalls right you know did, yeah. there were stacks of things that were cheap and I found it difficult myself who, who had, you know, someone that had sort of gone to a bit more cash to actually to make a decision to do something. So that's why I asked the question. Yeah. And I think what you mentioned is, is quite interesting that keeping active or deploying something that will enable you to get your psychology right to do something. Yeah. So it just gives you that bit of comfort that if things imploded, um, you know, we're going to be covered on some of these out of the money puts or something like that. And then it allows you to think clearly and go, oh, this stock's trading 30% below cash. Why am I not buying this? And it, whereas previously, yeah, well, I'm not buying this because I'm so afraid and I think the world's ending. Right? Um, so it's just putting that, that, those little external things in place so you can think clearly and um, take advantage of those opportunities because um, I've, you know, panic selling has never worked. For me, it's um... just for listeners, Andre. You mentioned the out of the money puts and things. Are you are you comfortable explaining sort of what that strategy is, just loosely, not you know, how to execute it, but what what that is and what that means, and what the outcome is if the market goes up or down for you? Yeah, it means. I mean, you you, you allocate a percentage of your capital, might be you know two, three, four percent, to buying a put option, which in its simplest terms becomes more valuable as the markets fall. So it's just like an insurance policy. And what you do is if um, you give up two, three, four percent of your capital for that um, for that insurance policy, if you like, and 
that allows you to buy the cheap stuff that's out there because you're comfortable enough. And generally what you're buying goes up a lot more than two or three, four percent. So you you cover your hedging costs. Um, but if things do implode, then you make you're gonna make some money on your on your put option. So okay, and the and the sort of practical side of that is it's a very leveraged um, position it's as leveraged. well. So you can only lose that three yeah. three or four percent maximum, but your potential windfall could be many multiples of that if the market really drops further. Yeah. And so you you know you We'd only go out a month or something like that. The, the longer the the option uh, time frame is, the more you have to pay. So we might go out a month because you generally know within a month or two if the world's going to implode or not. <laughs> you know, so it's normally a couple of weeks of heavy panic, and and then it looks like things are going to right itself. So and then you don't need need to keep doing it. So I'm um, just to, to do that a tiny bit deeper. Is that the sort of thing that you're doing in a a regular rising market or only once you're sort of feeling a bit more cautious and nervous? Only when you, only when things start to look, you get the feeling, you know, when things look ugly prior to Ukraine being invaded, the COVID stuff. And, um, but we keep an eye on the, on the, on the technical indicators on the, on the bigger indices. There's only three or four you have to look at every now and again. And if you see them forming a, a big topping pattern, then we might start to implement some of these things. Andre, I found that really fascinating, the hedge, because it I can I can see myself at some point in time actually adopting that strategy. But the issue, I, I can only rationalize it to do you, if you are betting on your sports team or if you're a footy fan or whatever, and you, you you know, you bet on your team and your team loses and you get doubly upset. Like I'll often do that hedge. But what I'll find with some of these long bets that I'll put out there is that I'll start thinking, I'll start doing more bets to cover the hedge, and then I'm really just end up wasting more money and I come out net, net sideways. So how do you stop that hedge from overtaking, over, over control, overpowering your, your main strategy, I guess? If yeah, there's a- yeah it's, a, it's a really good question. And so basically it's written into the, uh, the management agreement. We can only allocate a certain percentage to hedging at any one time. Okay, so it really is just a, a literal insurance type premium that's just a little bit, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, but then if it starts moving in your favour, you can use the, um, the profits that you're generating to increase the size of that hedge, if that makes sense. Yeah, okay. I think, it's re- I think the, the hedging concept is really interesting because a lot of long-short funds that, are, that exist in the marketplace adopt a similar strategy. And that, I mean, you talked about it as like, like a psychological benefit, but it's really, from what I understand, is about that when the market drops, not only have you not, lost as much on your positions but more importantly you've got that cash to redeploy when the market's dropped yeah because i presume for most fund managers the worst thing that can happen is prices drop stock prices drop unit prices drop and unit holders want their money back which makes the fund force sellers so they've got no cash whatsoever and not in a position to basically capitalize on the opportunities that are out there and must be really challenging when people don't have that sort of strategy in place yeah and and so the normal long short fund which plays at the bigger end of the market, I think it's really difficult because your alpha might only be three or four percent. If you burn that on your hedging, then you you net net zero, right? Yeah, like Sam mentioned whereas, before, yeah. Yeah. Whereas in the microcap space, when things go well, they go really well. And so that more than offsets the small amount that you're you're putting into the hedge. So I've found that um over time, it's more the psychology of being able to deploy in amidst panic 
and stay fully invested and deploy extra cash. So in, in June, we um, we raised some more money from, from existing holders. We just sort of put an email out and said, look, things are dirt cheap. Um, if things implode, we've got some hedging in place. People are like, yep, makes sense. Just on the the, the bad bad times, I suppose, Andre, and at the moment, obviously, the market's yep. still very challenging versus the same period last year. Are there any other yeah. strategies or changes in, I guess, how you manage the, the portfolio when markets are maybe more sideways? They might not be sort of terribly bearish, but just a bit less inspiring? Yeah. Uh, so things, when things get bad like this, there is more, there's more value and deeper asset value out there. So what we'll generally do is look at the relative value in the portfolio so it might be um, something you like but don't like as much as something else you'll sell that and deploy that into something that's got a more imminent opportunity or represents better value so it's more of a switching you go into more of a switching more discerning switching focus does that make yeah, sense yes so it sounds like you're sort of saying really focusing on that catalyst that sort of what's the best the best idea rather than an idea yeah and also um a little bit more market neutral so a biotech that's running a cancer cure trial is not is going to be less affected at this point versus a you know speculative buy now pay later or something i suppose at a more practical level for listeners is there anything that you think um opportunities that you you've realized over the years in for smaller investors in that sort of a more neutral market? Or do you think that the same sort of approach is probably warranted? Oh, I think um, when the bigger macro factors are, are un, unfolding, I've, I've found that these smaller companies do well, doesn't matter the market cycle. If the, the bigger macro opportunity is large enough, people will still keep, keep buying these things. Um, and that comes down to the size of the, of the opportunity. So, you know, we're looking at, uh, with supply chain issues now, we're looking at decentralization of, of manufacturing. So that concept of, you know, putting an order into a big factory in China and then waiting for it to be shipped. And, you know, it might be a less friendly country where your stuff gets made now and waiting on that. So we're looking at things like that additive manufacturing, which is like 3D printing um, and that decentralizing of manufacturing so you'll have these units building bespoke parts on site for you basically so no logistics and no capital in, in stock sitting there so things like that so i think bigger bigger macro plays like that will, will do well regardless of the market conditions if that makes sense yeah cool because companies need that stuff now so yeah so it's not even um, if things get challenging it's going to actually be a solution rather than a, a hindrance it's a solution that's sort of um, counter-cyclical, you know. Um, I suppose just a last sort of thing before we might get to wrapping it up. One question we do like to ask is, is there anything that you sort of know now that you wish you knew back in your early days? I mean, you've gone through a few of them, but is there, we're just after sort of tangible things, I suppose, for, for listeners. Oh, mate, well, I've got hundreds of those. <laughs> litany of got to ask mistakes. <laughs> yeah. What not, I would like to start again. What, what should you not do when you're on the hunt for a 10-bagger to find one and hold one? Yeah, okay. Um, I think... What I've found over time is the more excited I am about something uh, initially, 
and the bigger position I take initially, they tend to be the worst outcomes. So I would say if you're really excited about something and a broker's told you something, you've read something, you think this is fantastic, um, buy half uh, of what you were considering because generally your, your mind is a little bit messed up. It's excited and it's missing things and um, and so you load in and then you start really digging into it and then you find a few skeletons. So it would be if you're really excited, buy half of what you thought um, and if it turns out you're still going to make money. Um, but if it is your mind playing tricks and you, you know, dig deeper and you find a few things and you can put your other half in at a better price or how it happens. Um, and if you're really, really excited and you think this is going to set me up, um, buy a third. <laughs> <laughs> That's but, great. That's great advice. Certainly relate to that. The, res the research you do before you own something and the research you do once you own something really different that makes sense absolutely doesn't it's the old adage it's it's easy to buy but it's hard to sell something <laughs> yeah you hear it um unless there's anything else this has been really enlightening andre and um you know notwithstanding the firm sort of asset rules this is not advice this is this is just a punt this is an idea you probably hold it maybe we hold it i don't know do you have a 10 bagger for our audience oh uh well, I do, I do, I won't name it specifically, but it is in that 3D printing additive manufacturing space. Um, if people want to dig around in that space and they've just signed up um, some pretty heavy hitting customers like Boeing and Exxon AGL um, and those guys don't mess around in terms of the integrity of what they need done and quality. So sounds like that blue sky, that blue sky opportunity that you're talking about before with names like yeah. that. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Fantastic. Now that's really useful, Andre. Um, if people do want to get in touch with you, whether that's to invest or pick your brains, do you have any, do you, are you on social media or anywhere out there or would you like people to get in touch with you at all? Look, I'm always open to, to, to talking to people and people in the space and talking companies. So I'm happy for people to shoot me an email. I think I'm on LinkedIn. LinkedIn's probably the, the easiest way to get in touch. Oh, no, that's fantastic. Um, Thanks again, Andre. It's been really, really appreciative and some real nuggets there for our listeners. And... Well, thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you very much, Andre. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Music in this episode is called 10 Minutes by Green Monday and from twinmusicom.org. Remember, the contents of this show is not financial advice. If you have questions or need more information about your own circumstances, make sure to contact a professional financial advisor.